This is The Provability Gap. I'm Nadia Hamdan from KUT. In 2017, Austin had the highest rate of reported rapes among large cities in Texas. Austin's rate was also nearly 40% higher than all U.S. cities of similar size. Law enforcement responded to 625 adult rape allegations that year in Travis County. During that time, only one person was convicted of sexual assault by a jury. Even though an overwhelming majority of these crimes were reported to the Austin Police Department, none made it to trial in all of 2017. And that includes cases carried over from the year before. That's a lot of data, but it's important. And for some, it's nothing new. Community advocates have long argued the number of prosecutions for sexual assault is too low. But it was only after a swell of critical news coverage that city leaders started to take a deeper look. From DNA lab closures. I apologize to the community and to our partners in the criminal justice system that we're in the position where we are today. To misclassified police reports. Behind each and every one of these is a human being. To class action lawsuits. Female victims of sexual assault in Austin and Travis County have been denied equal access to justice and equal protection of the law. It's no surprise that there are people questioning whether the criminal justice system is really set up to protect rape victims. All of this has pushed city council to call for an independent review of how Austin police investigate hundreds of adult sexual assault cases from beginning to end. And more importantly, why so many of these crimes don't get prosecuted. Here's Austin city council member, Allison Alter earlier this year. As a council, we have an opportunity to acknowledge openly, honestly, and with intention that sexual assault is a violent crime that sexual assault is too prevalent in our city, that sexual assault disproportionately hurts women, and most importantly, that this is the time to affirm that we, the leaders, have a responsibility and a desire to do more to promote healing and justice for survivors. I spent the last eight months speaking with more than a dozen people working in the sphere of sexual assault. I interviewed victims, advocates, detectives, prosecutors, and professors. One thing was clear. Creating a system that is survivor-focused won't be easy. This is The Provability Gap. Part one, the victim. Okay. All right, let's do this. Well, you know I were here. When I first met with Marina Garrett, she was a senior at UT Austin, getting ready to graduate. Like most seniors, she told me she was nervous, but excited. It was an especially significant moment for Garrett, because for a long time, she didn't believe she'd make it here. Garrett gave us permission to use her full name. I think it's important to share what happened to you mm-hmm. in as much detail as you feel comfortable. Okay. So... However you want to do it. Yeah, so it was August 2015. I was out downtown with my best friend. It was just after 2 a.m., and then 19-year-old Garrett was on 6th Street. The bars were closing, and a flood of people were making their way out onto the street. Garrett and her friend were both drunk and got separated from the rest of their group. We were sitting on the curb waiting to figure out where they were, how we were going to get home, all that stuff. That's when a man approached them and asked if they wanted to buy drugs. He said that if I went the alleyway with him, he would let me try it before we bought it, basically. She said okay and followed him. 
but he didn't take her to the alley. He took me to a parking garage, slammed my head against the parking garage wall, and raped me vaginally and anally. Even though her memories are scattered, Garrett said she remembers trying to call people for help during the attack. The friend she was with that night even got a voicemail. It's the worst thing I've ever heard, because I sound... A human shouldn't sound like that. I sound in pain, desperation, like I am begging this man to stop doing what he's doing to me. Garrett's next memory was walking down the I-35 service road. That's when a man pulled over to ask if everything was okay. She said no. She didn't have her phone, keys, or wallet, so the man gave her a ride home. All she remembers after that is taking a shower and then going to bed. The next morning, her roommate approached her. Did what you said happened to you last night really happen? And I was like, what did I tell you? Because I woke up and I knew. I was like, I, holy shit, I was raped last night. Garrett went with her sister to Eloise's house. It's a 24-7 clinic that offers free sexual assault forensic exams. The exam itself is difficult. It's very difficult. You have to talk through something that you still barely understand. I mean, it had been not even 24 hours. You know, just not understanding how and why, and you have to tell someone else in detail. Not only was every aspect of Garrett's story under observation, but so was every part of her body. According to the forensic report, she had an abrasion on her forehead where her attacker slammed her head against the wall, as well as bruising all over her arms and legs. For the next three hours, Garrett was poked, prodded, swabbed, and photographed. My nurse let me see all the pictures that she was taking while they happened because they put purple dye that darkens anywhere that there's like excessive tears and stuff. And so seeing that too, I was like, oh my God, how is that my body? At the end of the exam, the forensic nurse filled out a form saying she believed Garrett's wounds were the result of a sexual assault. I told them I wanted to report and I called 911. It was a couple days before a detective reached out to her. During that time, she got a new phone. According to the police report, when she turned it on, she saw an unread text message. It was from her attacker. He said he wanted to see her again. She confronted him about what happened over text. He denied that he raped her. But now she had his phone number to give to police. I was like, okay, they're going to get this guy. I completely believed it. I was like, there's no way they won't. They know who he is. They know he raped me. Like, there's no way I won't make it to trial. Garrett went to the police station to be interviewed about the attack. She said she felt good about the detective, but the whole experience left her shaken. It's traumatizing, of course. I can never say that word enough to just be in the room, like, looking at a detective and being like, this is my story. This, this happened to me. The police ultimately found Garrett's attacker. He said the sex had been consensual and agreed to a DNA test. But because Garrett's rape evidence kit had not been tested yet, APD suspended the case until it got the results. Garrett called almost every month to check on the status of her kit. Every day, that's the first thing you think about. Every day, where are my DNA results? When are they? Is today going to be the day I'm going to get them back? And that was just all I could think about. Still, Garrett tried to get back to her life as a sophomore in college. There were moments that it would hit me and just be like, world-crushing, like, I was raped. But then there were moments that I tried to push it to the side and, like, play it off. But she couldn't play it off for long. 
By the time the next semester rolled around, she only made it two weeks before dropping out. But there were other things happening behind the scenes. A state audit had raised concerns that Austin's forensic lab could be compromising DNA results. The audit pointed to untrained staff and improper testing procedures. Garrett called her detective. She said, I have no clue when you'll get your results back. That's obviously when I started losing a lot of hope. The following year, the news broke that hundreds of rape evidence kits in Austin police storage were found to have signs of mold. I literally was at work and those would come on the news and I would have to hold myself together and wonder, was that my kit? Like, did everything just go out the window because my kit had mold on it? It was the summer of 2017, exactly two years after her assault, and Garrett tried her detective again. Her kit wasn't one of the ones damaged, but it was still bad news. She calls me back to let me know that my kit had come back and that there was no DNA. And I immediately broke down. The detective told her the district attorney declined to prosecute her case because of insufficient evidence. But Garrett wasn't ready to give up. She set up a meeting with the assistant district attorney assigned to her case. I told her how traumatic my life has been since then. You know, I had to, I stayed in bed for so long that I had knots in my hair that I had to cut out because I could not take care of myself. My PTSD was so bad because of all of this. Garrett said the assistant district attorney was sympathetic, but told her she still couldn't take the case. I was like, I want you to look at me now and tell me why you're not taking my rapist to trial. And she said the CSI effect. The CSI effect is something you hear prosecutors talk about a lot. It's basically the belief that jurors demand to see DNA evidence. That crime TV shows like CSI have influenced the public to expect forensic evidence, even when it doesn't exist. I didn't know where to go from there. I was like, okay, like, what can you do? Because I was just like, okay, your story's done. You know, like it's closed. The case is closed. Didn't know at the time it was exceptionally cleared. Exceptional clearance is when police effectively close a case, even when they have probable cause to make an arrest. But something outside their control is stopping them from moving forward. This can happen when a victim drops out of an investigation or when a prosecutor chooses not to bring charges. I'm an American citizen with all these rights. Like, why is my rapist getting rights and I'm not? It really felt like no one cared about it. Garrett isn't the only sexual assault victim in Austin to feel this way. In fact, she's one of eight women who filed a class action lawsuit against the city of Austin and Travis County, claiming their cases were mishandled because of gender discrimination. Even outside the lawsuit, a growing number of people in Austin and across the country worry the criminal justice system is failing rape victims. These are people signed up to speak when city council was voting to do an independent review of how Austin police investigate adult sexual assault cases. I can't recall even one survivor who felt like the way their case ended constituted justice. What we need is a new approach. We have thousands of survivors right here in Austin counting on us to figure this out. There is absolutely no room in this work for defensiveness or ego. Every time we fail to respond to sexual assault as a community, we're participating in additional trauma and injustice. 
Why is it so hard to prosecute sexual assault cases? It's something I wanted to try to understand. We just got one glimpse into what it's like to be a victim of this crime and not see any sort of justice. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other reported cases, and they all expected something to happen. So we're going to spend the next three days trying to figure out why so many of these victims are forced to watch their attackers walk free. I was very re-traumatized because of what happened in the system. You know, the rape itself was trauma, but what happened afterwards was also trauma. Part two, the police. Do you feel like women are not usually believed in these situations? Absolutely. You know, my detective did make me feel believed, but I've talked to a lot of survivors who did not feel that way, who were questioned very harshly. Garrett was the only victim I spoke to who said she felt believed by her detective. Read any other news report about sexual assault and you'll likely see the same concern echoed by victims across the country. Only between 2 and 7% of reported sexual assault allegations are false. But victims still say too many law enforcement officials are defaulting to disbelief. And the worry isn't only in their head. Historically, sexual assault law has been set up to protect men from false allegations. For example, there was something called the Lord Hale Rule. It stems from a 17th century lawyer named Sir Matthew Hale. Basically, he argued, Rape is an accusation that is easy to make and hard to prove. The word of the victim would not itself be sufficient to establish the elements of rape absent some other corroboration. That's UT Law professor Jennifer Lauren. Essentially, she's saying that traditionally, not believing women has been baked into the law itself. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, but that was centuries ago, experts say requiring corroboration of a victim's accusation was formally employed up until the 1970s. There's this conventional wisdom that's pervasive in sexual assault law that victims can sort of wield accusations of rape as a sword rather than a shield. And I think that there's been a lot of effort to change attitudes in that respect, but they have existed. And I don't doubt that they continue to exist to some degree. This isn't to say all police officers make the assumption that women are making false allegations. But even the most well-meaning detectives can mistakenly think a victim is lying if they are not trained to spot signs of trauma. Most people think that if you experience a rape or an an attack of some kind, that people are going to run away or they're going to fight back. But that's traditionally not true. That's Kristen Lanau. She's the co-founder of the Austin-based Survivors Justice Project and is well-trained in the neurobiology of trauma. Based on the research, we know that women who are sexually assaulted tend to experience that as a life-threatening incident. She says that means there will be some sort of survival response. Many of us have heard of fight or flight, but there's a third one, Lanau says, is less well-known. The freeze response. It's a protective response. You know, it's our brain kind of switching into a different mode, and it's telling our body, you can't overcome this, you can't overpower it, so in order to protect you from injury or death, we're going to wait this out. Think about a deer in headlights. 
Lanao has been working with sexual assault victims for more than a decade, and she says this is the most common response she's seen from women. And it's something the victims themselves struggle to understand. They're just asking a lot of questions of themselves about what what happened. Why didn't I move? Why didn't I fight back? Why didn't I scream? Even if a victim didn't necessarily freeze, law enforcement could still be misunderstanding other aspects of an assault if they're not factoring in trauma. Take the case of Emily Borchert, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against APD in the DA's office. In 2018, the UT Austin student was strangled, kidnapped, and sexually assaulted by three men over the course of 12 hours. Police identified the men, but according to police reports, the APD detective thought parts of the attack sounded consensual. Even though Borchardt's hospital reports show she had bruising all over her body, her detective said because she'd complied with some of the attacker's demands, they'd have a hard time getting a conviction. Here's Borchardt's mother, Sarah. Everything she did to minimize the harm done to her was kind of held against her. If she had had more physical injury, they probably would have been more willing to go forward with it. But the most psychologically damaging thing that happened to her was the rape. It was the rapes, and that that's insignificant. We reached out to APD, but a spokesperson said they could not comment because of the pending lawsuit. But based on Kristen Lanau's description of victim behavior, Borchardt's decisions were in line with what many victims do during a trauma of this magnitude. She says when that fear sets in, a person will do whatever they think will keep them from getting hurt or killed. Whether that's um, giving someone your wallet if you're being held up, you know, whatever whatever it is, if we feel overwhelmed and and threatened beyond our capacity, we will go along with things to protect ourselves from further harm. Lanau says she's troubled by the fact that some police officers and detectives don't seem to have a solid grasp on this when they sit down with victims. Law enforcement are typically and traditionally trained to interrogate suspects. There is not a lot of uh, built-in training into this culture and into this profession around interviewing victims. She's not the only one with this concern. The Austin-Travis County Sexual Assault Response and Resource Team, or SART, released a study last year aimed at better understanding the community response to sexual assault. 75 people were interviewed, sexual assault victims, law enforcement officers, advocates, and attorneys. An overwhelming majority of them said there's a need for more trauma training for patrol officers, detectives, and prosecutors. Now, APD does send new recruits to a conference that provides trauma training, but most experts agree that one training in the first six months after an officer is hired is likely not enough. When we come back, we'll hear what a former APD sex crimes investigator says about the department's handling of rape cases. This is The Provability Gap. I'm Nancy Hamdan. This is The Provability Gap. I'm Nancy Hamdan from KUT. When we left off, we were hearing how there may need to be more trauma training among the police officers and detectives working with sexual assault victims. We have to retrain ourselves and law enforcement to understand that the victim's behavior 
is going to be completely different than our expectations. That's former Austin Police Sergeant Elizabeth Donegan. I ran the sex crimes unit for nine and a half years. Then I was in the sex offender unit for six and a half years. Following that, I retired out of the sex offender unit um, nearly 26 years with the PD. After she retired, Donegan became known as one of the country's leading experts in the way law enforcement responds to sexual assault. She's also been publicly critical of the Austin Police Department's handling of these crimes. If you don't understand how deeply personal the crime of rape is, you don't need to be doing this work. Donegan, who's running for Travis County Sheriff, says she agrees that trauma plays a critical role in sexual assault investigations. But another big issue is... There is not enough people working in the sex crimes unit. One of the main criticisms victims shared was that they rarely, if ever, got updates about the status of their cases from detectives. Donegan says this lack of communication is a problem and can sometimes lead victims to drop out of an investigation. But as an investigator, if you have 15 cases that you're working that month, you're just doing what you can to keep your head above water. Right now, APD has 17 detectives in the sex crimes unit, but four of them are assigned to cold cases— That leaves 13 detectives to work on current cases. According to Austin police, there's an average of around 760 reported adult and child sexual assaults every year. That's more than 60 cases a year for each detective, not including the investigations that have carried over from prior years. Put in perspective, APD's homicide unit has 12 detectives and works an average of 30 murders a year. That means about two to three new cases per year for each officer. I believe that all of those investigators and the supervisors want to do the right thing and will do the right thing. But when you're overwhelmed, you're understaffed, you're triaging. Austin Police Chief Brian Manley said he's aware staffing is a problem and expects the city's review of sexual assaults will come to the same conclusion. But Donegan says all the training and resources in the world won't lead to more prosecutions unless police departments start prioritizing the more difficult and more common types of sexual assaults, the ones in which the victim knows their attacker. UT Austin's Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault found that 70% of sexual assaults in Texas are committed by someone known or related to the victim. In Austin, it's around 90%. And I don't think the, the community in general understands that. They think sexual assault is a stranger. It's the, the bad guy jumping out of the bushes, crawling in the window at night. But Donegan says those are a very small percentage of APD's cases. Most of these crimes look more like what happened to Sarah Jones. My name is Sarah Jones, one of the plaintiffs on the lawsuit. Jones chose to use a pseudonym to protect her identity. One night in 2017, she says her ex-boyfriend drunkenly came to her house, yelling outside her door. He refused to leave. Her son was sleeping, and after a while, Jones let him inside. She said she'd call him a cab. I'm a human being. I don't know what else really to say about that. They began to have consensual sex, but it quickly turned violent. He ended up strangling and raping her. He hit me so hard across the face that I thought my eardrum had burst on the opposite side. And I tried so hard not to scream so loud, but I grabbed my ear because it was excruciating. When it was over, she ran to the room where her son was sleeping and locked the door until her ex-boyfriend left. The next morning, Jones called Austin police. 
She went to a local clinic to have forensic evidence collected. Even though her attacker was arrested within the month, the district attorney assigned to her case ultimately decided not to move forward with the sexual assault charge. They did move forward with the strangulation charge, but that was ultimately dismissed, according to court documents. Joan says her prosecutor told her she was not a credible victim. It was all because of a past arrest where she hit another ex-boyfriend after he'd made fun of her son's speech impediment. She got three years probation. They took my case for one punch that didn't even cause any injury so seriously. And because of that, I was an uncredible victim. We asked the Travis County DA's office for comment, but the office said they couldn't because of the pending lawsuit. Even though Jones is the only plaintiff in the lawsuit who knew her attacker, cases like hers are more typical. Marina Garrett says one of the biggest reasons she felt police took her case more seriously was because her attacker was a stranger. But, you know, if it had been someone that all my friends knew, um, if it had been a family member, I don't know if I would have been believed. I don't know if I would have spoke out. Researchers at the training organization End Violence Against Women International say many people, including some in law enforcement, still believe a quote-unquote real rape is committed by a stranger. And it goes back there for, I think, several reasons. Again, former Austin Police Sergeant Elizabeth Donegan. No one wants to believe that you're going to be raped by your coworker or the person that you, you lay in bed with at night. But those are the majority of the cases. Donegan says prioritizing stranger cases means police officers are likely to be less equipped to handle the complexities of a non-stranger case. For example, officers still rely heavily on DNA analysis in these cases, but forensic evidence is usually needed only to prove the identity of a suspect or if sexual contact occurred. More often than not, especially when the victim is raped by someone they know, Donegan says the focus of an investigation is on overcoming the claim that the sex was consensual. So the detective has to unpack, is this what the victim said or the suspect? In order to make an arrest in that kind of case, police look at evidence other than DNA. This involves digging into the personal lives of the people involved. And Donegan says this often puts the burden of proof on the victim. Unfortunately, in many instances, victims are the ones who are on trial. From the moment they choose to tell someone, their credibility and believability is challenged. Even if Austin police believe there is enough evidence to overcome the consent defense, it's up to the Travis County District Attorney's Office to ultimately decide whether the case goes to trial. Two Travis County prosecutors work hundreds of sexual assault cases that Austin police investigate. And when it comes to whether a DA thinks a case should be tried, APD says those prosecutors' opinions weigh heavily on detectives. I sincerely believe that we would have more arrests if there were more detectives in the sex crimes unit and prosecutors who were willing to take these difficult cases forward to educate and change the culture in Austin. Part three, the prosecutor. Check one, two. Yes, it is. Okay, cool. Can you just state your name and title for the record, please? I'm Margaret Moore, and I'm the Travis County District Attorney. 
Moore was elected as DA in 2017. She's also among the defendants in a class action lawsuit alleging the mishandling of rape cases in Austin. When I came into office, I believed uh, that the number of jury trials in Travis County was low. That year, there were more than 600 adult sexual assault cases reported to Travis County law enforcement. 13 resulted in plea agreements, but only one case made it to a jury trial. I think that prosecutors have to have jury verdicts to make sound prosecutorial decisions. Moore said she made it a goal to send more sexual assault cases to trial in 2018, and she did. Nine cases went to a jury and eight produced a guilty verdict. Moore says it can often take more than a year for a case to make it through the system. This means a lot of those cases in 2017 just weren't ready to go to a jury. But what about the hundreds of cases from 2016 or 2015? This is why some survivors and their advocates were concerned there was only one jury trial in all of 2017. Marina Garrett is a survivor of sexual assault. She says when prosecutors declined her case, it was like hitting a wall. What can you do if you have a police department and a DA that aren't providing the justice? But the Travis County DA and other prosecutors I spoke to say it's a lot harder than people think to get a conviction in these cases. One big reason is because what someone may experience as a sexual assault isn't always recognized by Texas law. For instance, I've seen literature that tells the public, if you've been touched in a way you didn't like, you've been sexually assaulted, you should report that. That is not what a penal, the penal code calls a sexual assault. According to the Texas Penal Code, a sexual assault is the penetration of another person's sex organ, anus, or mouth without their consent. Things get more complicated when the law tries to define that lack of consent. In Texas, the emphasis is still put on the use of physical force, violence, or coercion. Threats of violence or the incapacitation of a victim are also treated as non-consent. So it's a very specific definition. It's not just, did she say no? Many of us might say, well, she didn't, she said no. But we still have to, on our side, have to prove that that no was overcome by force. But the fact is, most rapes don't involve the use of physical force. As we heard in the last story, most victims are so traumatized by the attack that they freeze. And the data backs this up. Only about 10 to 12 percent of victims in Texas report they were physically injured or threatened during a sexual assault. That's according to UT's Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. This can make it hard for prosecutors to prove these cases beyond a reasonable doubt. I can only use the tools I've got in a criminal justice world. Where our experience with juries is that they hold us to that test. Every detective, prosecutor, and jury in Texas has to approach each case with the penal code's definition as their reference. But there are many that argue Texas's laws are not set up to protect rape victims. The Austin-Travis County Sexual Assault Response and Resource Team, or SART, surveyed about 75 people, including sexual assault victims, law enforcement officers, advocates, and attorneys. When respondents were asked if the current law adequately addresses the crime of sexual assault, 94% said no. There's a big gap between believability and provability. This is not a judgment of the victims or their experience. It is the analysis that a 
prosecutor who is ethically and morally responsible must make to ensure that justice is done according to our Constitution and laws. But the confines of the law aren't the only reason these cases don't make it to court. It's important to remember that prosecutors still wield an enormous amount of power when it comes to deciding which cases to send to trial. Every victim I spoke to said they had a lot of questions about why their cases were either denied or dismissed. Think back on what the prosecutor handling Marina Garrett's case told her when they decided not to take it to trial. She said the CSI effect. The prosecutor believed a jury would likely not convict because there was no DNA evidence linking Garrett to her attacker. And that judgment is not totally unwarranted. Studies do show juries tend to expect forensic evidence and are generally more skeptical of rape allegations. But prosecutors know the reality. DNA is only important when proving someone's identity or proving there was sexual contact. Here's Margaret Moore again. But it is of less importance, perhaps no importance whatsoever, if the only issue is whether or not the conduct was consensual. But the suspect in Garrett's case admitted to the sex and said it was consensual. Why then was her case thrown out just because there was no DNA? And for the record, it's not just victims who are questioning if prosecutors are doing everything they can. My name's Jennifer Lauren. I'm the Wright C. Morrow Professor of Law at the University of Texas School of Law. Lauren tells me she agrees that there is an ethical obligation to decline a case if there isn't enough evidence. That said, it is not unheard of in criminal prosecution for prosecutors to bring novel theories, right, in order to push the law in particular directions. She says just as prosecutors have the power to decline a case, they also have the power to take on tougher cases. It's still possible to make the case, and it's and it's possible for the prosecution to do something that it frequently does, which is try to educate a jury. Lauren says prosecutors can convince a jury a crime was committed by reaching for as many available facts as they can. She says she's seen them do this successfully. That's actually one important way in which criminal law evolves. What Lauren means when she says evolves is that even if a prosecutor doesn't win the case, they're still exposing juries to the complexity and nuance surrounding this crime. She says right now, the legal system still seems to be prioritizing a certain category of sexual assault cases. Those are the ones where the victim didn't know their attacker and there was an extreme use of force. But an overwhelming majority of cases in Austin are between people who know each other and don't involve any serious injuries beyond the rape itself. Not pursuing those categories of cases is a choice that's being made. And what happens if prosecutors make a mistake? I mean, it happens. We're all human. But right now, the current system leaves little to no recourse for victims who feel their cases were wrongfully denied. This happened to Emily Borchert another plaintiff in the lawsuit against APD in the DA's office. She was a student at the University of Texas at Austin in 2018 when she was abducted and sexually assaulted by three different men, according to police records. After she reported her rape to the police, APD found the third man who assaulted her later that day. He told police he had never seen her before, but his DNA ended up matching a sample found during Borchardt's forensic exam. APD didn't arrest him, and the case was declined for prosecution. 
According to police records, the assistant DA working on the case cited a lack of evidence. Here's Emily's mother, Sarah Borchert. I I don't know, you just feel just very Mm. angry, and I cried. I cried. Mm. It just, it's hard to explain. It just matters Mm. so much. Borchardt and her mother later learned that one of their neighbors called First Assistant District Attorney Mindy Monfort to talk about the case. Monfort ended up taking the call because the neighbor also happened to be her former sister-in-law. In a recording of that conversation provided by the former sister-in-law, Monfort repeatedly describes the sex between Borchardt and that third man as consensual. All of this stuff I'm not allowed to talk about right now, but I wanted you to have it because... You've got to have some perspective, right? I mean, you're getting, you're hearing all this, and then you're like, and then they didn't prosecute it? What the hell? You know, so now, if she was saying that wasn't consensual, that's one thing. Right. But she says it was consensual. Nowhere in the written police report or the two-and-a-half-hour recorded victim's statement does Borchard say the sex was consensual. In the call, Monfort goes on to suggest that Borchard may be lying about the rape. Well, it's almost better to have the family pissed off at us rather than disappointed at her. Monfort confirms that it is her voice on the tape, though she did not know the call was being recorded. When I confronted her about the discrepancies between her version of events and the victims, she had this to say. I stand by what my prosecutors told me. You know, surely I'll look at all of this. I I think it's going to be the same outcome. Borchard is exploring a possible defamation claim against Monfort. Here's Sarah Borchard again. It seems like in the eyes of the people who should have been taking it most seriously, it was trivialized, like it wasn't a big deal what happened to her. Survivors and their advocates have long criticized the Travis County DA's office for not pursuing more sexual assault cases. A 2017 letter written by former co-chairs of the Austin-Travis County SART went so far as to call the current criminal justice system one that, quote, condones rape and does not hold perpetrators or itself accountable, unquote. But District Attorney Margaret Moore dismisses the allegation that prosecutors have refused a case for any other reason than the inability to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. If it's prosecutable, we take it. And that's that. This idea that there's some reason that we won't, we won't take sexual assault cases other than the insufficiency of the evidence is, frankly, erroneous and offensive to me. UT law professor Jennifer Lauren doesn't think it's quite that simple, though. She agrees that not having enough evidence is a real concern in many of these cases. Victims dropping out of an investigation is another unfortunate reality. But it's also possible that certain experiences or biases are preventing some prosecutors from pursuing a case. That's not the ill-meaning prosecutor. It's the prosecutor who has uh, developed an erroneous sense, right, of what juries can be persuaded of beyond a reasonable doubt. But for District Attorney Moore... Travis County prosecutors are doing the best they can within the confines of the law. She says it's the community that needs to adjust expectations. People need to understand that the criminal justice system is not here to give satisfaction to victims. 
That may sound a bit harsh, but it's a fact. We can't always make a criminal case out of a traumatic event. Part four, the public. All right, um, counsel, it is uh, 517. Uh, it's January 2019. Austin City Council is winding down one of its regular meetings. But there's one last item on the agenda. Then we have a significant number of folks that have signed up to speak on this. Most of the people signed up to speak are wearing yellow bandanas, a sign of solidarity for sexual assault survivors. Marina Garrett is one of them. I know survivors that have never been contacted by their detectives, who never got the results from their rape kits. I know survivors who were told their tortures sounded consensual. Garrett is advocating for a proposal from Councilmember Allison Alter, calling for a third-party evaluation of how the Austin Police Department investigates sexual assaults. Passing this resolution will give survivors across Austin hope that the people who are supposed to protect us want to do better and want to do the right thing. Because right now, for us, it feels like we live in a city of disbelief in a city that doesn't care. Check, check. And can I just have you tell me what you ate for breakfast this morning? I did not eat breakfast. Again? Again, I woke up. The last time I spoke with Marina Garrett, it was 2018, and she was still just trying to make it through her last semester at UT. But I wanted to check back in and see what had happened since then. Congratulations on graduation. Thank you. Tell me what that feels Thank like. Thank you. It feels great. Um, I completed my senior thesis, so I was able to graduate with departmental honors in cultural anthropology. The focus um, yeah, of her thesis really was on rape culture in America. Garrett also recently got a job working with rape survivors. In fact, much of Garrett's life has been and continues to be consumed with advocacy ever since she reported her assault. I've only been at this for eight months, and I learned a lot since I first sat down with Garrett last year. Just like her, I was left with questions about her case. The very first interview I did when I was still an anonymous survivor, someone with the police said, you know, nine times out of ten, this doesn't hinge on DNA. In the end, though, Garrett's case would be declined for prosecution because there was no DNA evidence. But she says her work as an advocate has made her better educated on sexual assault investigations. She knows now that DNA is only needed to prove the identity of the suspect or if there was any sexual contact. And both of those things had already been settled in Garrett's case. Her attacker was identified and told police the sex was consensual. And according to Travis County District Attorney Margaret Moore, DNA evidence is of less importance, perhaps no important whatsoever, if the only issue is whether or not the conduct was consensual. Garrett says she's heard this same thing from countless advocates over the years. You know, they all just say facts that go against my case. I'll just say, you know, DNA isn't needed for most of these. And I was told for two years that it was needed. And so it's just really hard to do this work sometimes. Garrett says all of this has left her convinced that some sort of bias played a role in how police and prosecutors handled her case. 
I absolutely do believe that it was discrimination and that it was everything we say in this lawsuit. It's been more than a year since Garrett joined a class action lawsuit alleging the city and county mishandled the cases of female victims because of gender discrimination. There's a lot said in this lawsuit, but one point Garrett's lawyers make over and over has to do with the one sexual assault case that went before a jury in 2017. The victim in that case was a man. His rapist was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. It turned out the man convicted had a history of sexual assault charges, including at least two women who alleged he raped them in 2013 and 2014. I don't know what the difference was, except that in one case, the victim was a man. That's Elizabeth Myers. She's one of the lawyers representing Garrett and seven other victims in the lawsuit. I think the presumption is a man would never say that he was sexually assaulted unless he truly was. And there's a gender discrimination presumption that that's not true of women. But police and prosecutors in Austin and Travis County are adamant the only reason these cases do not move forward is either because a victim refused to participate or there's simply not enough evidence. But Garrett doesn't buy it. It just makes you wonder what is enough evidence? What is enough? What do we as survivors have to go through for them to think we deserve justice? Just the question implies the complexity of the crime. That's Noelle Bush Amendares. She's a professor at UT Austin School of Social Work and the director of UT's Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. So I asked Bush Amendares if gender discrimination plays a role in the outcome of sexual assault cases. Our research shows yes and. I think you're going to find individual cases where women have been mistreated and their cases have been very poorly handled. And you're going to find police officers and prosecutors who have handled cases beautifully. Bush Armandares says there are a lot of reasons for why sexual assaults are rarely prosecuted. Gender bias is just one of them. But she says if people really want to change the way these crimes are handled... I think we have to move upstream to the idea of what is it about our society that allows this to happen She says because this crime affects so many people, we can't just look at the criminal justice system alone. Busha Mendares says this needs to be more broadly situated as a social problem. She says, stop and think about the Me Too movement. It exposed just how pervasive sexual assault is. And that's caused a huge shift in the way people think about this crime. I think every time that sexual assault gets onto the public agenda, it opens a dialogue. And that dialogue can be powerful. This morning, we continue our hearing on the nomination of Judge Brent Kavanaugh. Take Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 2018. Stanford professor Christine Blasey Ford came forward and accused Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her in high school. For many, This was a defining moment of the Me Too movement and the country's long overdue reckoning with sexual violence. With what degree of certainty do you believe Brett Kavanaugh assaulted you? 100%. For others, it was an example of how the Me Too movement had gone too far. My family and my name 
have been totally and permanently destroyed. No matter where you stand on the issue, there was an overwhelming response from the public. And it sent a stark message to sexual assault survivors. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, the organization saw a 338% increase in calls to the National Sexual Assault Hotline during the hearings. And the day after the hearing was the hotline's busiest day in its 24-year history. If society wants to see any meaningful change, says Bush Amandaris, communities need to allocate more time and resources to better understanding this crime. We need think tanks on this. We need persuasion groups not making policy on this right away, but the idea that we would debate this rigorously. Right now, she says, we simply don't have the legal mechanisms in place to unpack the more difficult aspects of sexual assault, like how to define consent. And Bush Amandaris says it will likely stay that way until society makes it a priority. Often people say, well, this isn't rocket science. And I say, it's not, it's a lot harder than rocket science. You try dealing with human beings on a mass scale and tell me how it goes for you. Passing this resolution will give survivors across Austin hope that the people who are supposed to protect us want to do better and want to do the right thing. Because right now, for us, it feels like we live in a city of disbelief and a city that doesn't care. We're back at the city council meeting. Council members are getting ready to vote on a resolution calling for an independent review into how sexual assault cases are investigated in Austin. The resolution passed unanimously. With this resolution, I invite my colleagues to go the Austin way and lead a transformation that will help our city and others turn the corner towards justice. Councilmember Allison Alter told her colleagues they would not be judged by this resolution alone. They'll be judged by the actions they take when the results of the review come in. It's a moment survivors and their advocates are anxiously awaiting. It's not over. This is just one win. We still have so many more that we need to accomplish. Marina Garrett calls the review a first step toward justice. Are you hopeful? I definitely am. Um, I think some days it's hard to be hopeful. It definitely is. But in the bigger picture, I am. You know, I have to kind of step back and think about the wins that we've made and the fact that we now have city council all putting yellow bandanas in support of us. You know, we, we now have so many people coming out and speaking so positively about survivors. And so I have to be hopeful because we have so many, made so many people listen to us. And so even though it's, you know, not directly about me and about my case, I am hopeful for survivors in Austin. When I started the series, I told you that creating a system that is survivor-focused won't be easy. It won't be. But maybe if we spend more time listening to the stories of the people who've lived through this, it just might help us get a little closer. You've been listening to The Provability Gap. This series was reported by me, Nadia Hamdan, and edited by Matt Largy and Stephanie Federico. 
Special thanks to all the survivors who shared their stories and to everyone who helped make this series possible. The Provability Gap is a production of KUT Austin. I'm Nadia Hamdan.